Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I'm Anna David, and I interview actors, writers, musicians, and other creatives about addiction, recovery, and sharing their dark to find their light. Well, I think that all my heroes were drug addicts. This podcast features both the interviews and the stories. The interviews often share the dark. The stories often share the light. Oh, yes. I had eight butt cakes while watching 35 forensic files, but I did not drink. Are you a light hustler? Keep listening to find out. And I was like, really? Like, that's you? That's that's it? That's what I am? I'm just bad at being uncomfortable? So simple, and it also makes me feel like it's such a dick. Hi there, you're listening to Light Hustler, a podcast hosted by me, Anna David. I interview people about addiction recovery and sharing their dark to find their light. I also uh, host a storytelling show. Sometimes these are episodes from the storytelling show. Today, an extra special treat because it is an in-person interview with Todd Zalkins, a big interventionist. But beyond being a big interventionist, he has a crazy personal life story that has to do with a 17-year addiction to opiates. It has to do with uh, detoxing and have doc- having doctors tell him uh, that he was the worst case they'd ever seen and how he managed to both sell 60,000 copies of his self-published memoir, and also help save a life that's related to the band Sublime. We also talk about his documentary. It's a good one. And the reason it was in person is that Todd came to uh, the Light Hustle Publishing Retreat in Ojai, which I have just returned from. It was a great success. We talked books. We ate s'mores. We did tarot readings. We got cupped. And if you don't know what getting cupped is go Google it. And then when you're done Googling it, go take the quiz. If you think you may have a book in you, please, I urge you, go take my quiz. Go to futureauthorquiz.com. Take the quiz, find out. And now let me bring you Todd Zalkins. Into a conversation. Oh, right now we're just doing like a little warm up. Oh no, we're live. Not live, live. We're recording. We're doing the podcast right now? Yes. You've already started this? Yes. When did you start? Just a second. So what do you want to do with this whole thing? We're just chatting. We're just chatting. So we're here on this retreat. We just met about seven minutes ago. Maybe six. And I only became aware of you once we started communicating about this retreat. And I will say that Ryan said to me, he's really modest. So he's not going to tell you like what a big deal he is. Um, and, and we're going to be watching your movie later tonight, but all I know from the trailer is that you had a crazy story. Well, <laughs> first off, thank you for, for organizing this. I'm glad that we're all together. I'm really glad you're here. And, um, you know, I'm glad that, you know, you and Ryan put this thing on and, you know, the story is, uh, there's a little bit to it. There's a lot of layers to it. At the end, it's all about, uh, giving someone who has zero hope, some hope and also helping, to uh, 
improve with awareness and education. So it's used on a few platforms. I've been really fortunate in that regard. Are you from California? Yeah, born and raised. Born and raised in Los Angeles? Long Beach. In Long Beach. Mm-hmm. And um, and this basically... Are we live was, again? We're, I, live can have many meanings. We're recording. <laughs> we never stopped. I, I, it's just so nice to be in this side of the seat for a change. So go ahead. So, talk, so okay, I can't... We're going to get to all your driving this kind of train. Uh, when I drive this kind of train, it's so casual that uh, you don't even know what's happening. I love the casual part of it. Oh, we're, yeah. we're, we're good. Um, we're so, good. okay. And so it was just a lot of... The sense I get knowing nothing. It was just a lot of excess from the beginning. Is that how your addiction started? Yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, we all, you know, for those who know about anything about addiction or alcoholism, we all know about the progressive nature of it. And I think that, uh, while the things were working, you couldn't tell me that I had a problem. And yeah, pretty much from the get go, it, it was kind of all in, but from a from a discovery perspective, and what I found myself getting uh, really sick on was years down the road, and and in my um, early twenties, I was uh, prescribed, prescri- you know, a, a Vicodin is how it started for me then, and I'd always drank and used tons of cocaine. I did, I didn't want to do my math calculations on my cocaine purchases, but way too much. And million. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, about 600,000 bucks is what I figured I spent on Coke alone. The pills, I can't even get into that. I just, but yeah, you know, I, one thing led to another. The drink was never a daily thing for me ever. Yeah. I was not a daily drinker. I was not a daily cocaine user, but when I would use that drug, it was a hellacious amount. Yeah. You know, and, uh, of course, demoralization shortly thereafter, but the pills were every day. Yeah. 17 years almost. Yeah. Um, and, um, were you prescribed them for an injury? Yeah. Yeah. It, I was going to college down in San Diego and I was, uh, doing construction work. I love being in the sun, being anything near the beach. So I was doing a lot of house, you know, framing of houses and stuff like that. And anyway, long story short, I took a bad fall off a truck and, and, um, I had a, a surgery shortly thereafter. My, I, I come from a family of doctors down in La Jolla and Del Mar and my uncle's a surgeon who referred me to one of his friends and he said, you have to have the surgery right away. It was really dire and it was serious. So I had the surgery. I was really young, didn't know much and a lot happened since then. And did, did I ever get to heroin or you stayed in the I smoked it. I smoked it and I snorted it. Um, I'm absolutely, and you'll see it in the film. Terrified um, of needles. Beyond. Yeah. Like I, I'm reduced to a small, I'm reduced to a very scared little kid um, in a, and anytime I have to have blood drawn or something, nurses have to hold my hand. I start to freaking shake and cry. It's like, yeah, it's trauma based from something a long time ago. And so I just, uh, do you know what it's, what it goes back to? It, there's two situations. One was a, um, a, a vicious doctor who, who back in the day with the kids, they, they use really thick, thick, thicker gauge needles, big needles kept poking me and poking me and I was just, just wailing. But uh, I think the worst was, uh, after a surgery, I was, um, I was completely wrecked by this nighttime. It was a male charge nurse who just, oh my God, between the catheter and between what he was doing with my arm. Um, it's been over a long period of time. So I was a little boy. Yeah, needles absolutely. In fact, if I, I'm glad that I didn't discover that I wouldn't be alive. There's no, there's no, there's no yeah. way. Oh, sorry. Um, That's okay. And, um, and so what age were you when you got sober? 39. I'm just over 12 years sober. My sobriety date is February 17th, 2007. So you had a pretty shitty Valentine's Day in 2007. 
Uh-huh. You didn't even know Valentine's Day was happening. You know, it's funny. I can actually, I can, I can tell you what my last drink was, and I can tell you that first off, everything had stopped working for months. Yeah. For months, I yeah. was flat. I was watching the Grammys. It was, uh, I was watching. Excuse me, the uh, the whatever the yeah, it was the Grammys, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers were winning Album of the Year. I'm buried in my home alone with piles of powder, morphine tablets, oxycontin. I'm drinking Crown Royal, and I'm looking at all these people in this audience, completely joyful and enjoying the Chili Peppers closing out the show, and I can't even even remotely appreciate joy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember you reminding me there was this song, um, He Doesn't Even Know That I'm Really Alive. It's like, it's, I can't remember the band, but, um, and I remember feeling like that all the time. They don't know that I'm really, that like, I'm not really alive. That was, that was the line. And I remember sitting with friends and that song played and they go, what does that mean? And I sort of had one of those moments when, wow, how could they not know what that means? That's how I feel all the time. Yeah. And, um, you know, those really visceral moments where you see your reality and go, this is not what other people are experiencing. Oh, my God. Yeah, and it, you completely. Uh, feeling so alien and and so lacking of anything positive uh, in my little world, and the world got really, really small, and, God, I hadn't laughed in so long, and mm-hmm. I just, there was so much fear. There was so much tension, so much... Um, just brokenness, a lot of brokenness going on and not even realizing if sobriety was even possible. I just want to get off all the pills. I just don't want to die from the, a pill overdose. I didn't think that there could be joy in sobriety or recovery for me. No. That wasn't the plan. No. no. So how did it happen? Well, on February 16th of 2007, I, I, I took some luggage and I was, um, I was seeing a, a woman down in Newport Beach. I moved my stuff into her place. Don't ask me how a woman was seeing me yeah. at the time. In the condition that I was in, <laughs> Alnon to the tenth level. Yeah. Uh, so I was in my home in San Clemente, and I had I leased out my home. I packed up my crap, went to a hospital in South Laguna Beach, and told them I was dying, and I could barely talk and barely walk. And and they said there is no doubt that you're dying. How and many pills were you taking a day at that point? I can tell you exactly what I was taking. This was for a long time. Uh, 16 to 18, 80 milligram Oxycontins a day, two to three fentanyl sticks of 800 micrograms a piece, 10 to 12 Norcos, smoking heroin on top of it. It was like strength-wise over like 100, 110 Vicodin a day. So people wondered how that didn't kill you, I'm imagining. I'm very, I got, my, things were starting to fail. My heart was, my first off, my heart, not my liver, my kidneys, they weren't doing too good either. Yeah. But my heart was starting to slow down and I was starting to, um, it was skipping beats and it was stopping in the middle of the night. And so you detox in this place. Huh. Oh, no, not, it went well beyond that. I was in treatment for 23 days. The only reason I didn't stay the other seven was because there was no family around because I'd pushed everybody away who cared about me and everyone was so scared of me at the time. So I didn't sleep in rehab and didn't sleep for another 21 days outside, 44 days without sleeping. So... So, okay, that was a rehab or that was a detox or both? Okay, that was, a, that was an actual hospital-based yeah. program. And okay, and so yeah. you stayed there 23 days. 23 days, came out, didn't sleep for another 21 days, and I physically shook for over nine months and from the detox. then what happened or what was happening during that period? Did you start going to meetings? What did you start yeah, doing? Yeah, that, that, that was my only saving grace, and you know, and it was started at the hospital. There was a men's stag meeting down, the, down in the auditorium. And these men were, you know, you've heard this million times, whether it's men or women, they were laughing, they they had purpose, they, um, you could tell that there was joy in the camaraderie, and, um, but it seemed very, very foreign to me. I was, 
I just, um, that was the magnet for me, though, was seeing people smile. And I could tell that these men um, were succeeding in life. And I could tell that uh, they meant what they said. So I fell into a very, very loving group of men in Laguna Beach who, to this day, I owe my life for. Owe my life to. I would walk through fire for them. And uh, I love them dearly. And um, and then talk to me about this. Um, so you were re- like really close to a lot of musicians. That yeah. was your vibe. Do you play? Yeah, I, I'm. I still am the, the lead singer of a punk band from Long Beach, and we grew up in our community. Music was, and I don't have any tattoos. Cause I'm scared of needles, and I yeah, did. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I had mine removed. Did you? Okay, yeah, man. you really should be scared of that because that's painful. <laughs> they did a good job. On I know. Me, man. I know. You can't save it all. <laughs> um, yeah, growing up in Long Beach, the the scene was awesome. I mean. We have, there's a pool of just wonderfully talented musicians and, and, and on every single level and whether it's punk, reggae and you name it, we have it. And so, yeah, I grew up with a lot of, uh, good, good people. What's your band called? My band's called Corn Doggy Dog and the Criminals. Are you, um, Corn Doggy Dog? Are you uh, no, I'm just, one, I don't know what I am, but. What do you uh, play? I sing. Oh, you're so just lead singer? You yeah, don't play bass or? No, I got, we have really good players in our band. They're good. Are you going to be singing this weekend? Uh, with you guys, not unless you're doing Frank Sinatra karaoke or something. I'll sing Summer Wind to you. I was going to bring my ukulele, but I didn't. Um, now, okay, and, and in particular, you were very close with the the band, or you are very close with the band Sublime. Yeah, I grew up with those guys. You know, we're all in Belmont Shore, a little beach community in Long Beach. And, you know, I, I, uh, I know, I've, I've known those guys since we were... One of them since I was 10, 9 or 10, the other since I was 12. And then Brad I met in my, you know, right around there, 13, 14 years old. And so ran with those guys and, and uh, they were on a, meteor, uh, on a meteor ride, man, to fame. And Brad died and I was with him when he died that night in 1996. He had just been married for a week and he had a baby boy. And yeah, I love those guys a lot. And they lived the same way that I did, which was for the moment, not giving a shit about tomorrow and just... You know, full tilt. Um, and what are, in case people don't know, what were some of their songs that people would... Well, I mean, it, Sublime's self-titled album was, was the album that really broke them. And they had a number one single, which, which was a Billboard number one single called What I Got. They're known for that. Off of that album, you've got Santeria, you've got Wrong Way. Those are big songs, um, really, really big hits in the radio market. But the song that broke them was a song called Date Rape off of their uh, 40 Ounces of Freedom album. And I was I was actually the star of the video and Ron Jeremy, the porn star, rapes me in jail. And, oh, my God. Oh, uh, yeah. The thing is, it was nuts. We filmed that like in 1994. And Date Rape broke them. It's a parody about, about the act of date rape. It's not about... It's not suggesting it or, hey, right. go, go do this to Was a it, I imagine quite controversial or not. You know, t- it's funny. Today. Uh, then, today, hell yeah. But um, if you listen to the song, it's a wonderful song. It's got a great vibe to it. And um, and it's it's about really the consequences of what happens if you go that route and you end up getting in jail and, and getting yeah. stuff from, with Ron Jeremy. With Ron Jeremy. <laughs> Maybe some people's dream. Yeah, my, it's not mine. Not yours. I, no, I get that sense. I don't think it's yours either. No, 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 not. But I, I have met him. Um, <laughs> He's classic. Man. Yeah. Now, and so and so, when you say you were with him the night um, he died, so it's a week after his wedding, you guys yeah. are both active addicts. Yeah. And, um, and I imagine that's quite traumatizing to be yeah, it was, around it, that. Well, it was, it was what was... 
first and foremost, you know, we'd all been at his wedding the week before, and then they have the shows up north of San Francisco. You're from Marin County, aren't you? I am, yeah. So their last show was in Petaluma. You, so you know where Petaluma is? I do. At that Petaluma Theater? Yeah, I've never been there, but I know. Yeah, it's a great venue. And so that was, um, they, they played a great show that night, and... Um, I had this big Lincoln rental, Lincoln town car, and I tried to drive it out of the theater parking lot with all the guys in the band. I crashed it in the side of the theater, and the band manager says, now, my nickname is Z-Man. Like, Z-Man, you're not driving back to the city. And so I got in the back with everybody, and next thing you know, we dropped off Brad and the guys at their hotel, and I was staying with the booking manager's house. And uh, I guess at about 2 or 3 in the morning, Brad tried to call me, and I couldn't wake up because I was intoxicated, and... And uh, he died shortly after that phone call. Overdose on um, heroin. He uh, he died of a heroin overdose. And um, and so this movie that you made mm-hmm. is all about helping his son, the one that was the newborn. Then there's it, it, it focuses. There's a lot of sublime in it, and and certainly about growing up in the community, and and also about how the addiction got a hold of me and what it took to recover. And so. Having recovered and becoming an interventionist and some other stuff, I was able to finally take that call when it happened when uh, Brad's dad, Jim Knoll, called me to tell me that Jacob was dying of of alcoholism and drug addiction. And so it was kind of like a full 180, and and it was a beautiful moment for me. And he's sober today? Yeah. How long? He's now sober two and a half years. He had 18 months, went out, and went out hard. We got him back in, back on the the treadmill of life, (laughs) of sobriety, and... And uh, thank God, you know, he's doing great and he's having a really bitchin' life, you know. And what's the movie called? It's called The Long Way Back, the story of Todd Z-Man Zalkins, and it's on Hulu and Amazon and Google Play and iTunes. I wasn't like, let me go make a movie. Some How people, did it happen? Some people came to me, the, uh, a, guy, a, a producer up in Canada, heard about my story and he flew me up there and we talked. And I was really scared about it. I mean, I, I had a memoir out for six years already. That memoir is called Dying for Triplicate. Um, and I had not helped Jacob get sober yet. So long story short is uh, this guy wanted to make a film. And I kind of got excited about it because I wanted to take it to schools. And I wanted to talk to kids and maybe just ramp up the level of awareness and stuff. So uh, what happened from there is I fired him because another producer down in Orange County wanted to do the film. And he knew the scene. He understood music and Long Beach and all that stuff and so we got on really good and we won some awards for best documentary and gratefully speaking we got the film done in a year and it's um, we got a good deal from Sony on uh, the Orchard Pictures and uh, so yeah now it can be seen basically anywhere and so it's helping a lot of people a lot of people are finding recovery because of it and for that I'm super super thankful when, when did it come out? it came out in October it'll be two years this October so it's been out for about 18 months, maybe. And so talk to me about deciding, because my entire mission in life is helping people share their stories. And we publish, my company publishes books, a lot of recovery books. Uh-huh. Talk to me about your decision to do that. So you, so you did that years <laughs> before the movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I actually wrote the book. I mean, the damn, for whatever, for whatever reason, the damn thing, it sold like almost 60,000 copies and it's done pretty good. I saw it has a bunch of reviews. Yeah. Yeah. It's done well. That's 60,000 copies. Yeah. That is an insane number of yeah, copies. Yeah. I, I didn't, I wasn't like, let me, this is how it started. The, the gentleman who treated me, Dr. Daniel Hedrick, um, who, who I was treating with in Laguna Beach, he said, you know, and now like it's 20 plus that he's detoxed over 20,000 people. So it's your, your case is the worst thing I've ever seen. 
And as I was getting sober and starting to help others do the things that we do in recovery, he and his nursing staff said, Todd, you've really got to write your story. Right. This, this could help people. And they encouraged me. And next thing you know, I started writing. And there's not too much spirituality in there because at 18 months, I wasn't Mr. Spiritual Guy. But I certainly uh, encompassed the, the raw nature and the gritty nature of what we go through and encompasses a little bit of my, about my first year in recovery, which was gnarly. It was really gnarly. My, gnarly how? The post-acute withdrawal symptoms lasted for over a year. And what were they for you? Constant clamminess of my skin, um, um, my the right side, my, my right side, my right hand, and my right leg constantly like chattered and and just moved and it wouldn't settle down. You you kind of think I was going into a stroke, and it was all the time, all the time. And uh, when I started finally getting sleep, that would, I would settle down a little bit, but I was always looking like <laughs> just like man, this guy's had like twenty five cups of espresso or something. What yeah. is this deal? And uh, I just didn't think that that would ever pass, and it did. Thankfully speaking. And um, yeah, so I wrote the book. I went to New York. I actually had three publishers interested in it. And I think I got to tell you, because this was around the time when the when Big Pharma was just still dominating and the cat wasn't out of the bag. Some of these publishers were scared of the content. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't bashing Big Pharma. I was taking responsibility for my addiction. And um, who published it? I did. Oh, so you, you turned down the publishers? Stri- no, they, they never made me an offer. Right. Hache, Penguin, Hache, yeah. and Simon and & Schuster. Yeah. And uh, I went to a writer's conference. I was so excited. I was, I think, the only writer who had three three of the agent, uh, uh, the representatives said, we really want to see this. And I sent it to them, and they just said, they just said, this is a little bit too, I don't know, I forget what one of them said, but oh my God. I was like, okay. So I just pushed with, uh, I was really bound, but the self-publishing route became... Um, Became good. My friends from Sublime put on their social media. So there was some organic following there. Yeah. And in the first year, the thing sold like 20,000 copies. It was pretty good. Yeah. Second year, about the same. Yeah. And so since then, it's... Yeah, my whole thing... It trickles. I did, I did six books, traditional publishing, and, and then my last two that have been self are so much... They're doing better. Uh-huh. They've been fun to, to promote. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who knew, right? Publishing. I know. Yeah. Well, it's changed, you know, and you really were part of that wave of it changing. For sure. And, I'm, you know, uh, we take our knocks doing our self-published stuff, but you know what? It's ride or die on our own, man. And it, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm thankful it's, it's reached a lot of people in places I've never even heard of, too. It's cool. Yeah. So what made you, how did you become an interventionist? So at about, at about two and a half years sober, my skin finally started to settle. Uh, there was a gentleman in South Orange County, and may he rest in peace, Jeff Jones, who was a master interventionist. He, uh, he would see me at meetings, and he knew about my story. And he's like, man, you could really identify with some of these people who are sick on the, on the opioids. I think he'd be a good interventionist. He took me under his wing and trained me appropriately. I got my KDAC, my, my drug and alcohol uh, uh, license. I also got my, my addiction specialist license. I, I did the work, and I, didn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't seeking it. I wasn't like, oh, you know, I never worked for a treatment center. I've yeah. never done that. No offense. I love, I'm glad that there's treatment out there for everybody, but... But I just couldn't work for a treatment center. It was like, I, I've always done stuff on my own, it seems like, at yeah. some level. And um, and then you do you have a focus of the kind of people you intervene on? How does it work? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. You know, I, I've i intervened on, on every shape and size. It doesn't matter. I mean, you name it, I've done it, whether it whether it's meth, whether it's alcohol, whether it's a 75-year-old lady, a successful 68-year-old CEO male, Obviously, tons of young young people, especially between 18 and 24. It's yeah. where the, the target seems to be these days. But I've really covered the whole spectrum. 
it, um, I don't specialize in anything in particular. I, although I'll tell you this, I will not intervene on a female meth addict anymore. I'm Why? Like, just too gnarly. It's it's been my worst experiences ever. I gotta say, I have a thing for moms. I love moms, right? Yeah. I got my mom back in my life because of recovery. And when I've had these radical interventions with with these young ladies who are just completely thrashed off meth, the way they talk to their parents, I just can't. Wow. It just ruins me. Yeah. It ruins me. I can't imagine talking to um, my mom or or I, I know that it's just the disease, but it that. The disease to me is so sinister. Meth addiction to me is so gnarly and so sinister. Anyway, when I get those these days, I refer them to a female colleague of mine who uh, does those. I'll do anything else. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So, and um, so is your passion in creativity? Is it in doing the interventions, or is it just in spreading this message and well, lives? Uh, it, that's definitely one of my passions, but the the. What's truly taking hold or defining my purpose these days is something called Higher Ground. And if you go to the thehighergroundexperience.com, um, myself and three other partners are in the process of developing a revolutionary education and awareness um, a platform for which young people, it's incentivized learning, for which young people will be able to uh, uh, experience real-life scenarios, peer pressure situations, all held on their smartphone um, we're going to be um, lining up with uh, the biggest health carriers in the country, big retail to help fund the project as far as the gift cards. But the higher ground experience is, is hands down for me. I, I want to see kids avoid overdose. So it's virtual reality. Is that how it works? Yeah, put it this way. It's going to be like a Netflix series. of the, You're going to get to know these cast of characters and we're going to have several different not versions, but we call them lesson pods. So, so there'll be five lessons in a pod and, and, and it's going to become a social community where people are able to interact in a healthy environment. People are living in non-toxic ways. It's a total different way of educating young people about substance use disorder. And so for me, it's, um, and Ryan, in fact, Ryan Hampton is on our advisory board. Right. He's super excited about it. We've got a wonderful um, uh, uh, board of advisors and Ryan being at the right there at the top. So yeah, that's I love my intervention work, but the higher ground. And when is that going to be available? We are we are actually we are actually we, we, I'm glad you asked that because um, we are getting rebranded right now by this wonderful company called Crush and Lovely in New York City, and they are thrilled about what we are doing, and we are going into our investor talks over the next month. Fantastic. Yep. But people can go to the site now. Highergroundexperience.com. And so you have this one book and, and we're here learning to share our stories and you have a lot of experience sharing your story already. Do you think you have another book in you? It's funny you asked that. I actually was, was considering about a year ago, but I got so busy with higher ground and with my, I do a lot of speaking at colleges all around the country. Me too. Are you in, do you do the NACA kind? The what? NACA, the, you go through the National Association of College. Uh, oh, oh no, uh, A-R-H-E, the association. Oh, okay, different. Yeah. yeah. A different. Um, and also just by referral, I've a lot of people just reach out to me from different institutions. And um, so there's been a good word of mouth thing from that. But uh, um, to go back to... The book. The book. Oh, yeah. Okay, so, so <laughs> the first one is just so gritty and it's so... It's so raw. I can't really, really look at it myself. It speaks to the attic for sure. But, when I was, but the subsequent thing I was thinking about writing was something that's more spiritual based and how I've grown up a little bit. Yeah. You know, I don't talk the way I used to talk. I don't act the way I used to act. I made a lot of changes, which to me is what recovery is about. It's about growing up and changing. Did you write your first book yourself? I did. I wrote it. Yeah. Anything Everywhere. I've written. 
every single word. Yeah. It wasn't co-authored. Yeah, yeah. No. And um, and what else? Um, is there anything else you want to share? Oh, what do you credit? How how do, were you able to go to this inhumane level of pill taking that would have killed ten men mm-hmm. um, to getting sober? What happened? Well, uh, I, I I'm convinced I was I was close to dying to begin with. I didn't. The, the thing is, I didn't want my mom to get the phone call that her son died from from this disease, and this was just something I when I. I I think I said it before. I wasn't like, yeah, I'm going to go get sober, everybody. I wanted to stop those drugs. I wasn't like, Sam, I'll never never drink again. Yeah. You know, I just, I found it really started with a group of people because I don't take, I had to do a bunch of work. We all have to do some work to recover, but I don't take all the credit. The credit goes to a really big family of, of these really, truly caring men who had huge hearts, unconditional love, and they saw a really sick guy that they wanted to help. And uh, really, the credit goes to them and to uh, a power much greater than myself. Yeah. Um, well, that's all I've got. This has been fantastic. I'm excited to, you know, learn more about you as this weekend goes on and watch your movie later tonight. Um, is there anything else you want to add? Uh, tell me about one of your books really quick. Uh, I want to hear. Yeah, this, I get to, we just switch the script here. For a I second. know. Well, my What's your are... favorite book that you've written? Oh, Party Girl. My first book um, was... And is that about you? Yeah, totally. Because there's a character's name. I was reading... Amelia. I just saw something. Thinly are you, Disguised. Are you Amelia? Yeah, of course. Um, and, and so I always talk about this, but my first book, you know, it was just a pure experience. I just wrote it. I didn't know about agents and publishers and Amazon reviews and Goodreads and all of this stuff and book sales. And I just wrote this thing that was from my heart. Mm-hmm. And I had the luckiest experience. I had agents... Um, you know, wooing me. I, my agent sold it in a week to my top choice publisher, total Cinderella story. Then Cinderella got back with the evil stepsister when my publisher was fired and like the biggest scandal to ever hit publishing. I recently, I'm not friends with her. Um, and then I, I sold five more books, but it was like, it was just my, my heart was kind of broken from the whole thing. And every book I wrote was kind of like, well, would people like this? Would Goodreads like this? Would it hit the New York Times list? And I did have a book hit the New York Times list, but it was not one I expected to. And I realized it killed my love for writing because I forgot why I did it. I just wanted, I just, the minute you're going, will people like this? I got to write what people will like. You failed. Completely agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard that one little saying about the uh, the counterfeit innovator? The counterfeit innovator is wildly self-confident. The real one is scared to death. Oh, I love that. Except I have that pasted in my office. I'm not scared when I'm being real. Okay. Hold on. Okay, there's a way to think. Okay, hang on. Yeah, tell me. What, what, meaning, I'm going to write this book. It's going to kick ass. People are going to love it. They're going to love me. All that crap. It's like being behind this meaning scared to death translates into really pouring it out there and being fully transparent and letting yeah. it all hang out. No bullshit being, ex- just like you're saying. Yeah. That is where the rubber meets the road for me. Yeah, I mean, I know that I got my priorities screwed and um, I've cared about book sales. And this last book that I just released, How to Get Successful by Fucking Up Your Life, it was the first book <laughs> since awesome. Party Girl. Oh, you're, you get a copy. It's in your gift Oh, back. super cool. Um, 
was the first book since Party Girl where I didn't really care if anybody bought it. Nice. I didn't really care. I just, it felt really good to write. It felt really good to put out. And, um, and that's kind of all that matters. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. Yeah, because I'll say one more thing. I'm going to say this about this guy. You, you remember that book called A Million Little Pieces by by that James guy? Fry. Yeah, he wrote, he's a, I know him. Do you do? Yeah, he well, wrote I the intro to, to one of my books. Yeah. Okay, well, I get to say something because... Sure. Tell the truth, dude. Yeah. Sorry. It's just like, tell the truth. You're not getting oral surgery with no... With no, no, no when I saw that, I put yeah. the book down and go, this is fake. And I felt bad because he wrote it really well. Yeah. He got all that fanfare and all that stuff with the truth. That wasn't telling the truth. I know. It wasn't being honest, man. I know. I know. I mean, and that's... I think it takes some time to get to your authentic self. Um, for some people, I mean, you were there at 18 months or whenever you wrote mm -hmm. that book. And the reason why it was so successful is that you were telling the truth. I, I, I Maybe that's a component to it. And I wasn't trying to throw him under the bus so much. But no. that taught me a lesson in yeah. that, you know what? It's just got to be as gritty and real as I can possibly be. And I'm looking forward to reading the book you put in the bag here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's funny, mostly. Cool. I, I'm a big believer in you trick people into thinking they're being entertained while secretly trying to, like, save them and infiltrate <laughs> the message. Right. Because, you know, you get more flies with honey or something. I can't remember the expression. There's some great Southern expression. I can't remember. But <laughs> right God bless you for allowing me to promote my shit. Hell yeah. Podcast. I got to put it back on you for a minute. Thanks yeah. for having me on your show. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's super fun. And um, to find out more about you, is it toddsalkins.com? Yeah, toddsalkins.com. And, and the film has a website too. It's thelongwaybackfilm.com. But yeah, just toddsalkins, Z-A-L-K-I-N-S, toddsalkins.com. And it's uh, if you search on iTunes, Amazon, it sounds like it's everywhere. It's everywhere. You cannot escape it. You can't. I'm screwed. <laughs> <laughs>